This morning we'll hear from God's perfect word in John 16, beginning in verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Blessed are you, God of all creation. You spoke in the beginning, and all things came to be. You spoke, and your word came to dwell among us, full of grace and truth. Bless this place where we would hear your voice. As the word is spoken, may our ears be attuned to you. As the word is spoken, may you speak to us. Amen. This will be the third week in a row where I challenge you to delay applying Jesus' lesson to yourself before clearly understanding what it meant for the disciples. We should first ask of every passage what it meant to the original audience. And Jesus' farewell address does a good job of showing us why. It can be hard to resist making that immediate jump from the text to ourselves, the here and the now. We take Jesus' words, first that repetition of a little while, and then you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. We hear that and we, we think quickly about our own situations. And we conclude that our suffering will last a short time compared to eternity. And that our suffering will turn to joy when we are resurrected on that day. It's easy to fall into that kind of interpretation. To quote the great 20th century philosopher Carly Simon, you're so vain you probably think this verse is about you. <laughs> but this passage isn't about your resurrection, or even the disciples. It's about Christ's. It's also easy to make the jump to ourselves in this case because the theological conclusion of that interpretation is, in fact, true. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's true. But while that is the point Paul is making in 2 Corinthians 4, 
It's not the one Jesus is making here. The two points are even connected. But if we start with Paul's and skip right over Jesus' point, we miss much that matters. This is true of scripture reading in general. When we bring our own narrative and expectations and read them into the text, even if what we conclude is true, we missed the value of that particular passage. Here again, we must start with the disciples rather than ourselves. Last week, it was because of the uniqueness of the apostolic roles. They are apostles and we are not. This week, much like two weeks ago, it's because of the unique moment in redemptive history and history where this is taking place. Two weeks ago, we focused on the apostolic age, the difference between that time and all time since, the time where they, the apostles, were receiving and recording and building the New Testament and the church of Jesus Christ. This morning, we focus on a different division in redemptive history. Before and after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And in this moment, the moment where Jesus is speaking, those things haven't happened. We live in a post-resurrection, post-Pentecost era. This, these words he says here, this is the moment just before all that. And it makes all the difference. Verse 16 is transitional. One textual scholar writes, it simultaneously closes off the topic of the Holy Spirit and sets the stage for the disciples' confusion in the following verses. That John repeats in a little while here and then again here two more times. It tells us that that idea, in a little while, is, John thinks, important to the narrative. It's important because it's at the heart of the disciples' confusion. Jesus said he would go in a little while, and he'd be back in a little while. But he also said he was going to the Father, and they would see him no more. The disciples are often confused when they try to piece together the explanations of the future that Jesus offers them. On this side of the resurrection, it's easy to look at what Jesus says and make sense out of it. But the disciples had no category for a crucified Savior, much less a resurrected one. To them, the promise, I'm sorry, to them, his promise to send the helper notwithstanding, this departure sounds like abandonment. It's no surprise they cannot bear to hear these things. They are utterly confused. And though they can't make sense of it, Jesus gives them a straightforward, objective account of what they are about to experience. The first little while is the eminence of his arrest and his death. And the second is an objective description of how long their specific sorrow over his departure will last. We know it to be three days. Three days! That's not so bad, right? Of course... When it's your sorrow, three days can feel pretty bad. Three days can feel like forever. When it's your suffering, uncertainty, and pain, duration really isn't the point. 
But objectively, it's only three days that the disciples will grieve so deeply. Is it that big of a deal? To answer, let's see how Jesus responds. He has a lot to tell them. Important information. He knows what they do not yet know and how important it is. He knows that their sorrow over his death will last only three days. But he does not dismiss their upcoming sorrow. He does not seek to diminish the power of their pain. He responds to their predicament in perfect love. One pastor writes, he knew that the solution of the puzzle could wait. Events about to transpire would take care of that. What the disciples did not understand now, they would grasp later. But the pressing need of the moment was to dispel their gloom. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. In the New Testament, weep and lament are a combination of words used most often to describe the grief that's felt at death, the death of a loved one. Relationships bind us tightly together. Upon their relationship with Jesus, the disciples had pinned all of their hopes for the future. All of their identity was in him. And then he died. Only three days. Only three days. When the finality of death is before us, only three days feels like a lifetime. Hours and days are not the right units of measure for grief. Further, the world around them poured salt in their wounds. The give us Barabbas world wanted Jesus dead and rejoiced to see him gone. The it is better that one man die religious rulers also. The disciples' grief upon Jesus' death would itself be tremendous. Now magnify that by having to grieve in a world that mocked their Jesus here cannot take away the disciples' pain. He could only do that by rejecting the Father's plan to save, refusing to die. He can't even make them feel, no matter what's true, he can't make them feel like joy is just right around the corner in a little while. When it happens, when he dies, no promise of future joy will take away the immediacy of the pain. And all Jesus can do is tell them what will happen and do what he said he would do. And then in chapter 17, he will pray to his father to keep them, to persevere them in the knowledge that he had given. To help them understand, he gives them this illustration. It's a common one to scripture, childbirth. I've seen how unenthusiastic a woman can be as labor approaches. Having seen childbirth three times, I can't say I blame her. The first time included the fear and uncertainty of the unknown. But even the third time, now a very familiar routine, the anticipation wasn't what I would call joyful eagerness. No one should look forward to suffering. And while suffering... No one's grief should be minimized 
or dismissed because of some good we know will come from the suffering. Kids, it's very rare in life when it's not that bad is the right thing to say. Much better most of the time is, I'm really sorry you're going through that. Here, Jesus, knowing their disciple, knowing the disciples' pain will be short-lived, nonetheless sympathizes with them and comforts them in light of their forthcoming grief. And a lot of his sympathy is expressed through what he doesn't say. He holds back because he says, you can't bear to hear it now. When comforting others, we must also never assume the outcome of their grief. There is a kind of grief in this life that will neither be forgotten nor surpassed by corresponding joy. We live in a fallen and broken world that is crying out to God for restoration, is crying out for the lifting of the curse. And to read this passage as an invitation to tell others that any specific suffering will always, in this life, correspond to a specific joyful outcome is to really miss what Jesus is saying. And it's to distract from the real place of comfort and joy. In childbirth, suffering does give way to joy. The joy of holding that new baby in your arms can be equaled but not surpassed in this life. And thankfully, women regularly find the intensity of the joy outweighs the intensity of the grief. Otherwise, we'd all be only children. Jesus is speaking very specifically here to his disciples about a very specific situation. He's talked to them already about some of the suffering they'll experience at the hands of the world's hate. He's told them how to think about that and how by the power of the Spirit they will persevere. He isolates this suffering because it's a unique case. It's one particular instance of grief that they will experience soon in three days from Friday to Sunday. And their hearts will be sorrowful. Because of the sin and wickedness and brokenness of the world. It will get worse for them before it gets better. But he wants to tell them about that specific grief. It will get better. And it's not that the agony will be forgotten. How would they ever forget the way they felt when the stone was rolled in front of that tomb of their Savior? And they're God. But the intensity of that pain will be surpassed by the intensity of the joy at Christ's resurrection. And there, finally, I think we can rightly understand how the disciples' experience interacts with our own. Jesus is talking about their experience of his death and resurrection. In a little while, he will be crucified. Their pain will be immense. Then, in a little while, unlike some earthly pains that are not fixed in this life, he will be raised and their sorrow will turn to joy. 
Jesus' death and resurrection are eschatological events. It's a big word, but they concern not just the moment at hand, but they concern eternity. Notice he says, I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And then what does he say? And no one will take your joy from you. His resurrection changes everything. For the disciples first, and yes, for all who follow Christ after them. When Christ raised from the grave and ascended to the Father, the dawning of the new creation was at hand. The source of the joy Jesus promises here is not something the disciples would have to wait long to see. In just a few days, that joy would come not just from a promise of what is to be, but from the reality of what is. What would take away that pain was not a promise of the future, but an it is finished, the reality of what is. That's why no one can take away their joy. No one can undo the resurrection. And so if we take hold of that same source of joy, no one can take it away from us either. It's the age itself, the age of the risen Christ, the period in which we live post-resurrection. That's what Jesus says would give the disciples joy. And the realities of this new age will change their experience, even in a world that continues under the curse with its thorns and its thistles and its sweat. These fearful and confused disciples would, even under those conditions, be transformed into men who would change the world. I found this commentary helpful. Jesus declares that in the dispensation of the Spirit, these men would no longer be at a loss what to do. No longer desiring to ask questions and yet not having the courage to do so. In the light of Christ's resurrection... The meaning of all such matters would become perfectly clear. Then these men would know why Jesus had to die, why his death was advantageous for the church, and exactly how a source of gloom had been turned into a source of joy. Knowledge of the resurrection of Christ promotes perseverance and even joy. And this is not just the forward-looking joy that we point to in the promises of the new heavens and the new earth. This is the present reality joy that is ours because we live in the age in which he is risen. We don't have to wait for our resurrection to find joy amid suffering. His resurrection provides now joy, joy that no one can take from us. This is what would be immediately, in a little while, true for the disciples. And this is what's true for us even now. It's one thing, it's a true and useful thing, 
But it's one thing to say that sorrow will give way to joy when Christ returns in glory. It's good. It's important. But it is a separate thing, an important thing, and a more immediately relevant thing to have joy even in the midst of present sorrow because we know that and why he is risen. That knowledge, that knowledge that perseveres through trial, that's the first change of the new age that Jesus references in verse 23. The second change regards their relationship with his father. How they approach the father will now and forever be through Christ. What they ask of the Father, they will ask in the name of Christ. What they receive from the Father, they will receive through Christ. Post-resurrection, seeing what they've seen, being led into all truth by the Spirit, the disciples know what truth and godliness are. They know the meaning of life at this point. To be a Christian is to know because God has made it known to us. So they don't have to ask any more for that. Likewise, we know what to ask, things that align with God's will. We know who to ask, the Father. We know how to ask in the name of the Son. And that's why we pray as we pray, always in the name of Christ. It is on Christ's account And through Christ, that our voices raised to the Father in prayer are heard. And under the power of his Spirit, we pray for those things that are consistent with abiding in him. We pray for the fruit of abiding with Christ like we talked about a few weeks ago. And so we get what we ask for. But why? You ever asked why? Why did God orchestrate his salvation so that we, abiding in the risen Christ, knowing the mind of Christ, petitioning the Father through Christ, would receive the things which work to our good and his glory? Why? And Jesus answers that your joy may be full. The whole experience of abiding in Christ and petitioning boldly the Father and receiving what we've asked for because we know the mind of Christ and we pray for things that are consistent with his will and we we live in the fruitfulness of faith. That entire experience is the fullness of joy. The disciples would face incredible hardship, sorrow and suffering, even to the point of death. But even within that, they were abiding in the risen Christ. They were being given everything their God-honoring hearts prayed for. And so their joy was full. What Jesus laid out for them in these chapters, in this farewell discourse, what he told them, and by extension, yes, he tells us, is a path to joy. I don't usually ask you to jump around to other texts, but one scholar pointed out some connections that I think are essential as we wind down this portion of Scripture. Turn to John chapter 8. What Jesus lays out is not a linear path to joy, 
as much as a, a, a matrix of which joy is at the center. John eight thirty one. You'll remember these passages, but now let's, let's see how Jesus in his farewell discourse is bringing it all together with his disciples and with his people. John eight thirty one. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So in the matrix of joy is the freedom that comes from knowing God's revelation. As in today's passage, that knowledge of God's word is connected to joy because we know that word. We know God and the things which will align with his will. And that's why when we pray, that knowledge informs our prayer. And so that we, like the disciples, get what we're asking for. It's all bound together. We pray to bear fruit. And when we abide with Christ, we do bear fruit. Flip forward to chapter 15. In verse 4, same kind of language, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Within this matrix of joy is the fruit of the Spirit and the path of godliness. And what is godliness? He told us it's love for God and love for for others. So then look down at verse 9, 15, 9. We love God and others because he first loved us. It says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. You know, I wrote in my, my first draft manuscript at this point. You want more joy in your life? Love others. It's, it's all interconnected. The fruit bearing, the obedience of God, the knowledge of God that's manifested through loving others with joy at the center of all of it. Right after that, verse 10, he ties in obedience. Remember when he said keeping his obedience is abiding in him? It is abiding in his love? In 15.7, just as in this morning's text, the result of praying to God for fruitfulness is receiving that blessing from him. And it is, in 15.11, just as in this morning's text, that your joy may be full. The most important application we can take away from this morning's passage is not that we, like the disciples, will experience short times of suffering that ultimately give way to everlasting joy. The application is because that in a little while, Christ would be raised from the dead. Everyone who believes in him after that would live in an age of ever-present joy. It's unimaginable for many of us. We think about obedience. We think about God's word. We think about walking in Christ's likeness. And we don't think about joy as the center of that matrix. We think about duty or obligation. Sometimes we even think about burdens. And yet look at how Christ talks about these things. And again and again, it is that your joy may be full. Put him to the test. There are many things in this life that can bring joy. But all of those things can be taken away. Those joys can all become sorrows. 
And we do, in those times especially, need to remember Paul's words that those temporary afflictions will not compare to the joy of the new heavens and the new earth. Praise God for that. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But Jesus says that we don't have to wait for our own resurrection to have the fullness of joy. And it's because he is risen. We, even in suffering, live in the age of resurrection joy. And that no one can take away until he comes. Amen.